Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative Podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Catch, and let's get started. All right, welcome back to the classroom for Narrative 101. And before we jump into our topic today, I just want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, If this is your first time at All Things Narrative, welcome. So good to have you on board for the journey. And in case you haven't heard by now, we are currently in the process of creating a collective document as a podcast. In other words, we want to hear from you out there. And to have you be able to share, you know, in these hard times that we've been facing in the last year or two years or so, you know, what's sustaining you through those times? What values, beliefs, hopes, dreams, commitments, sense of purpose, uh, stories, people, what gets you through these hard times? And so I'd invite you to send that uh, little 30 second minute where you share what that is. And we're going to compile all these together into one episode and share it with our friends and families and people all around the world of just how we are getting through these times and what is sustaining us. And so this is your opportunity to get to be on this podcast, to be a part of making a difference. So if you're interested in that, please record and send your submission to me at Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C-K-H at allthingsnarrative.com. And that email will be in the show notes as well. All right, here we go. So Narrative 101, we're building on this. We're doing this. So we've got the narrative metaphor, the foundation, And then we had to talk about this idea of externalizing problems, that we are not our problems and that our problems come to us in different contexts and that people are multi-storied. Although we can be tempted to define them as one thing, we know that people are a lot more complicated than what we see. And so part of this, part of, uh, and this is going to kind of complement that episode. So if you haven't heard Uh, either of those episodes, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. But if you have, then I think this episode is really going to complement both episodes of Narrative 101 we've had so far and starting to kind of um, uh, connect them a little more uh, before we start talking about in our next couple episodes, specifically about the way we think of our lives as stories uh, in terms of the elements of story and what storytelling is itself. So for today's Narrative 101, we are looking at identity. And remember our good buddy John Stillman and his book, wonderful book on narrative uh, principles. Uh, Number five in that book is Identity Proclamation. So I want to acknowledge before we jump into this that identity is an incredibly, incredibly complex subject. And there is no way in 20 minutes I am going to do justice to hundreds and thousands of years of thought and insight as to what identity is. And so what I am really going to focus on with this episode is the narrative point of view in terms of narrative therapy, narrative practices, and connecting that with how we understand identity in stories. There's a lot I'm not going to cover here, and I'm sure there'll be more episodes where I'll talk about identity. It's quite a large component of narrative practices and just in our culture in general. 
There's lots of conversations around identity. And so this is a mere introduction and scratching the surface. But I want to challenge you. You might hear certain ideas about identity that uh, might challenge uh, conventional thinking out there. And so uh, maybe just sit on it and think about it and see where it takes you. Because we're all just trying to figure this thing out, right? And we are trying to figure out who we are. In fact, for thousands and thousands of years, human beings have tried to use symbols and language, words, writing to try to describe our experiences and communicate who we are. If you think back to like a lot of ancient cultures, you know, there was this honor versus shame dynamic in those cultures. And part of the honor-shame culture is this idea that identity was not seen as individual. Identity was seen as communal, that you were a part of a group, of a tribe, of a family, of a community, and your identity is tethered to that place, tethered to uh, the roles and the people in that community. And so it's important to understand that because our idea of identity nowadays, as we'll talk about in a moment, is very different, to say the least. So there's lots of ancient examples that you can give in talking about identity. With my background, I, I know a lot about uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so when I think of you know, an identity statement in these types of cultures, there's a great example from the Jewish book of Ruth uh, in the Tanakh or for Christians in the Old Testament. And in the story, you have a, a woman named Naomi and her husband dies, her two sons die, and she's left with no biological family uh, left, or at least that I know of. And so her, all she has are her daughter-in-laws and her daughters are young. Her daughter-in-laws are young. And so she tells them basically, you know, all right, go back to, you know, your land, your people and make a new life for yourself. I have nothing left to give you. And so Naomi wants to return to the land of Israel and Ruth, one of the daughters-in-law clings to her. And Ruth makes this, uh, she breaks out into this poem here and this is a good idea of identity and how it worked in the ancient world. She says, um, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and say to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. So there's this idea that if Ruth leaves the Moabite people that she came from and goes to live with Naomi, her whole identity changes. Her identity is identity is very tethered with the land and the and the people in the land. So Ruth would now become an Israelite, basically, in terms of her worship. She would become identified with that would become her family and her role there. And so this is why in an honor-shame culture, if there was shame upon you and your family, you know, that was, that was it. You know, many people were excommunicated from these cultures and had nowhere left to go. And so they would wander and they would not in a, they would not in their eyes have an identity of sorts. So identity has changed uh, to become more individualized, especially through the enlightenment. And you got thinkers like John Locke and, 
Eric Erickson and, you know, all these different people that have written many things about identity. But basically what we've come to now is understanding identity, uh, especially here in the West, as very individualized. This idea that like, uh, and it's very scientific here, the that everything has a core, at something at its core, um, that if dissected can provide the truth about what appears on the outside. So in other words, for people, well, if people act a certain way, there must be something inside of them that's causing them to act that certain way. And, you know, that can get linked into identity and stuff like that. You know, and I've talked a little bit about structuralism on here and structuralism being that like, you know, that take would be like your identity is consistent. You know, uh, who you are, when you're born, it's already fixed in stone and now you're just kind of playing that out and discovering that in a lot of ways. And post-structuralism is this idea that your identity is constantly being formed throughout your entire lifetime. It sounds like nature versus nurture and narrative practices definitely tends to lean more on the nurture side of things. And it's this recognition like, like obviously there's things that you're born with, right? especially a lot of physical things and, you know, even genetics and whatnot. So it's not a denial of that. But in narrative conversations, what we tend to focus on is this idea of our identities as a journey, our identities being formed through uh, relationships and being formed in context and sociocultural contexts. What we're trying to do with narrative is consider how the stories of our lives, the stories that we tell ourselves and stories we tell about ourselves, all the stuff we talk about in the narrative metaphor, how do those stories speak into who we are? Who do, what do they tell us about who we are? What do we interpret from them about who we perceive ourselves to be? So, you know, you've got this idea uh, that Jerome Bruner talks a lot about, about the landscape of action, which is, you know, it's almost like the plot. Like, what do we see unfolding in our lives and the landscape of consciousness or identity? And that is interesting that consciousness and identity are, are very much linked together for many people, the way that we talk about it. And it's this idea that, you know, what are the statements that we make? about ourselves? What conclusions do we draw about who we are based on what happens to us in our lives, based on what we experience? That's what narrative practices is really focused on. And there's a great quote here from a Jewish neurologist and author named Olivia Sachs. And she says here that if we wish to know a person, we ask, what is his story? His or her real inmost story for each of us is a biography, a story. Each of us is a single narrative, which is constructed continually, unconsciously, by, through, and in us, through our perceptions, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions, and not least, our discourses, our spoken narration. Biologically, physiologically, we are not so different from each other. Historically, we are each of us unique. And for the most part, I really like that definition. If you heard my last episode about people being multi-storied, then, you know, I disagree with the statement that there's a single narrative that we all live by. Um, I definitely don't think that. But other than that, I think I think this is a pretty tight uh, understanding of, of what we're trying to do is we see our identity through the lens of story. 
And that story is constructed. It's, it's, it's ongoing. As long as we are alive, your story isn't over. And that's what really sets us apart. That's what makes us unique. Uh, we have so much in common, you know, biologically, but it's really the narratives, this idea of identity that sets us apart and makes us different. And there's a contrast between, you know, who we are, again, like this idea that almost we have to discover it, and who we are becoming. If you haven't heard our interview with Jill Friedman, uh, go check that out. It's, a, it's the first episode. But I love Jill's comment on, on that episode about becoming or being that kind of person. Like she had this idea that good people and bad people, like, oh, I'm a good person. But there's this reality that in life, we have to make choices and these choices can lead us into the kind of person that we become. And the reason why we talk so much about people are not their problems is because we want to recognize that, yes, we make choices informed by problems, but those problems don't have to define who we are. They're, it's informed by a context and we might, we might be letting a problem, you might be letting a problem define who you are, but that doesn't mean it has to define who you are. And that's why we do what we do in narrative practices is how do we get to a point where that no longer defines who we are? So it's interesting when we talk about who we are versus who we are becoming. And there's lots of examples I can give, you know? Um, like I want to talk about an example with authenticity, okay? So it's kind of a strange thing to think about because if you ever thought about, am I born an authentic person? Like, am I born the type of person that is just authentic with people? And I don't know what the science or the psychology says about that, but isn't it interesting that authenticity is often predicated on a series of circumstances? Like, for example, you're probably more authentic with the people you love most than you are with the stranger uh, at the bus stop. You're probably more authentic in a setting that you're familiar with, maybe a certain home, a certain workplace, a certain coffee shop. You're probably more authentic there than you are um, when you're somewhere that you're unfamiliar with. And so authenticity, you know, like, are you predisposed to being an authentic person? Like, is that just who you are? I don't necessarily know because it seems like we have the, the capacity and the capability to be authentic given the right circumstance. And if somebody is in a setting, like if you are in your work setting and you're not authentic, then what's the reason why? Is it because there's people that you feel like you can't trust at your workplace? Is it because maybe you were authentic at one time and maybe you were ridiculed for it and now you shut down and you just kind of put on a facade, right? So you see how this idea of authenticity, is that something who you are or is that something that is part of who you're becoming or who you can be in a circumstance? And it's complicated. And when you go to fiction, it's no less complicated as well. I like what Robert McKee says that a character, you know, that is the qualities of a person. A character is who you are displayed under pressure. When the circumstances push against you, what kind of person comes out? 
And what we love about stories in fiction is that we get to see characters that go through changes that lead them to become a certain kind of person that will respond a certain way in that circumstance. So like a good example in fiction that kind of, you know, contrasts these ideas that we can we can look at in terms of identity is is Harry Potter. And we'll do a whole episode on Harry Potter at some point. But what's really interesting about Harry Potter here is that Harry Potter is born from parents who were wizards. And Harry Potter, he has the capacity to be a great wizard. Everybody tells him like, you're, you know, Hagrid says it, you're a wizard, Harry. They tell him that that's who he is. And so on the surface, when you start Harry Potter, it looks like this almost like destiny story. Like he's destined, he's born in this, etc. But if that's all the story was, then there would be no need for anything else. What's interesting about Harry Potter and the reason why we get invested in it is because even though he might be born with the potential of wizardry, he still has to learn the knowledge and skills behind it. He has to form his values of what kind of wizard he will become. And we watch this unfold and that's the journey that interests us. You kind of see what I'm saying here is we see that there's trials that Harry faces that he could go in different directions. You know, we know, especially like in Chamber of Secrets, we know that he has choices that he could make that could lead him down the path of a Voldemort. It actually, the movies and the books really are intentional that Harry could go down that path. But Harry chooses the path of what is good, of what is a good wizard in that world. He makes those hard decisions, those choices under pressure, and he has people that support him through that. He's got, you know, Dumbledore. He's got Hermione and Ron and, and Hagrid. He's got these different people. And there's a lot of things that inform the kind of character that Harry becomes and what his identity as a wizard is. Another great example that I love in fiction is, um, is Peter Parker. When, uh, when Spider-Man gets the symbiote, you know, the black suit. Have you ever seen that in a, in a movie or in, in the shows or the comics? We come to understand Peter Parker as a certain kind of person. And I, I'll talk when we do that episode about what kind of person he changes into. But the symbiote comes along and it presents a new context for him. And it's, I love the idea of the symbiote because it's an externalized problem. It's something that he puts on deliberately. He chooses to put this on and it impacts the choices he makes. Those choices redefine to people who their perception of Peter Parker is. Now we, the reader, know that Peter Parker is not defined by those choices he makes in the black suit when he gets brutal and doesn't hold his punches. But nonetheless, he has to separate that from his identity. And that's what the, the black suit story is all about. It's about him externalizing that problem because the symbiote is manifesting these problems and he's separating himself from that problem and he no longer allows it to define him. 
and he stands on the values that Uncle Ben and others have inherited to him so that he doesn't become something that which he doesn't want to be. So yeah, you see there that identity, it's a journey and it's narrative in structure. That's what Frank Rogers says. He says that the self is a story, each of us, in essence, the central protagonist in the novel of our life. Further, this narrative sense of identity is informed, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, by the narratives of one's community. Destructive narratives erode this vital sense, while life-giving narratives can heal and restore. So it's wise to think about what narratives, what stories you're allowing to impact you and to influence you. It's very easy, for example, to like if you have ever been abused or been in an abusive relationship or a situation like that, and that person who's abusing you is making you think something about yourself. Maybe they're thinking that you deserve that. Maybe they're making you think that that's all you are. And so you can have an identity that the way you see yourself is, well, I don't deserve these things. You know, I'm a victim of this. And that's all you might see. You know, uh, The Color Purple, which is, which is one of my favorite novels of all time, really goes in, into that about how there are people that perpetuate narratives and discourses around us that get us to believe certain things about ourselves. And these things can, like, like what Frank Rogers says, they can erode that vital sense of who we are because they're pushing us into that singular narrative that I talked about last episode where all we see about ourselves is this one thing. And we don't see the alternative narratives that about us in that regard. And on the flip side of that, you know, narratives can heal, they can restore, they can be life-giving like in a community. So, you know, I've been a part of the Christian community and churches um, for more than half my life. And there's this idea of like your identity in Christ. That's something I always would hear. And the interesting thing about identity in Christ when it talks about it, like when Paul talks about it in Colossians 3, he talks about that this is something you have to put on. You know, he says in like letters like Ephesians and Colossians that you are putting off uh, what he calls like this old self, this former way of life. And you put on like, like clothing, uh, this new self that's being renewed daily. And he describes like, you know, what is this, this old self? What are the things of your identity that you have to, that you have to put off? And he, and he lists what some of those are you know, like greed and sexual immorality and thing, you know, things like that. Anger, malice, slander, abuse, lying. But now you have to clothe yourselves with uh, that which is good, you know, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, the ability to bear and to love and to forgive, uh, all those things. And so identity then, it's it's something that you have to, choose to put on and choose to put off and to not allow yourself to be defined by certain things and to be defined by other things. And in the Christian perspective, again, this idea of an identity in Christ is that it's something you're given. It's not, you're not born with it. You're, you're, you're given it through a context, um, through a relationship 
and you live that out. And in terms of how the narrative influences you, you know, for the Christian, your identity is in Christ, which means you identify yourself with the narrative of Christ, which means that the choices that you want to make on a daily basis and the type of person you want to become is like Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says all these things about putting off certain things and putting on other things, because it speaks to the narrative that Christ lived and the narrative that you want to enter into and allow to influence your life and shape you as a person as well. Again, going back to narrative therapy here, you know, identity is achieved in relationship with others. So like for the person who wants to have their identity in Christ, have a community of people that also want that identity and you live in that together and you move in that direction. And the people that you live life with, the people that you share uh, your experiences and you share who you are with, you know, are going to influence who you become for better or for worse. So if you're a young man and you are seeking to find your place and you see, you know, the gang and the gang, you begin hanging around with this gang and the gang is going to have certain values and certain things that they believe in and certain things they're going to do and certain things they're going to ask you to do. And what you might have grown up never thinking that you could go in that direction. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have an initiation where you're asked to take a life. Before you know it, your identity is moving in this direction and it's influenced by these people. Also, there's the whole idea of recognizing that we're informed by things that happen in society as well. You know, if you are in Ukraine right now, or if you were in Ukraine and you're leaving that country and you're becoming a refugee and you're living in another country, you know, how do you hold on to your, your Ukrainian, your culture, and at the same time, take on an identity that has a different culture? And where's the fine line? What's that journey look like as you do that? Uh, how do you renegotiate that identity as you're moving through that culture? Maybe you have to learn a language. Maybe you're the way that you've done things. Maybe there's certain habits that you have to start doing because this workplace is different than where this workplace was. I mean, there's a lot of examples I can give here with a, uh, identity, but um, let me kind of give like a, a final story that'll kind of wrap all this up together and really give the implications of what this looks like in narrative practices, all right? And this is a story that I share in all my workshops, and I even have a video on my website uh, where I share this specific story. So if you've heard this before, uh, just, just please forgive me, but it's so helpful. So we make identity statements about ourselves, and this has to do with us being multi-storied. So, you know, there's the identity of me Derek as a father. There's the identity of me, Derek, as a husband. There's the identity of me, Derek, as a musician. There's the identity of me, Derek, as a teacher, as a podcaster. You get the idea there. And there's also these other things as well. Like, am I the kind of person that pays their bills on time? Am I the kind of person that helps someone on the side of the road um, when they get a flat tire, like a good Samaritan? There's lots of ways we perceive our identity. And there's even the narratives of, there's stories I grew up with that have shaped who I am. One of those examples that I can give is, is driving, is we have a particular narrative 
around driving a car, right? Whether that be the narrative of you learning to drive or maybe you being a passenger, being in a car, you get the idea. So imagine for a moment that you're 16 or 15 maybe, and you're learning how to drive a car and you do your first behind the wheel training and maybe it doesn't go well. It was a disaster. I know that's how it was for me. And then, but the second time you do it, maybe you get a little better. And maybe the third time you get a little better. And then you get this confidence to where you can take your driver's test and you pass. And all of a sudden you're looking at it say yourself and going, wow, you know, I'm a pretty good driver. And you get that cocky teenage edge of like, yeah, I could go drive. I could go do whatever. And that's what happened to me. But two months after I got my license, I got in a really traumatic car accident. And let me tell you, this car accident was a game changer in my life in a lot of ways. You see, what happened was I was driving uh, my brother home uh, from drumline practice and we had turned the corner and I it was a red light and I made a right turn. And my car, instead of staying in the right lane, I started, I went into the left lane. Now I didn't see any car coming, but there was a car that was going pretty fast down the highway. Um, and before I know it, I'm in that lane and bam, that car has smashed into my car and I've lost control of the car and the car has completely gone off the road, up a bank, and there's a giant oak tree that plows through the windshield, just inches from our faces. And as it's doing that, I'm just sitting there, you know, the glass is all shattered and our car is, you know, the car is total at that point. And I'm, you know, just upset and I have to crawl out the window and I'm cussing at this guy and he's bigger and scarier than I am. And here I am in this moment and this car accident really shook me up because when that happened, I walked away from that accident saying, making the statement, I'm a terrible driver. Not just I'm a terrible driver, but I'm a terrible person. How could I let that happen? And I walked away from there with that belief and that stayed with me for years. It took me about a month or two, I think, to really feel okay uh, driving a car again because of the, the trauma with that. And when I did drive, you know, I was very afraid because I didn't know if my parents trusted me anymore driving. So that didn't help my, my confidence with that. And, you know, I still could drive. I remember driving to school and, and you know, the lots of grace there. And I remember this having an impact. You know, I was uh, afraid to go places. I was uncertain of how I would do. And as I got older, I didn't want to like go on road trips. And eventually I didn't want to borrow other people's cars. I didn't want to rent cars. I was afraid. I was just afraid. I was living in fear with all those things because of that narrative and the trauma informed by that narrative. But when my wife uh, to be, when we were dating, she really came along and really changed that narrative. We would drive all the time. I would drive all the time on dates and, and you know, she would tell me like, Oh, you know, you're, you're not a bad driver, but I didn't believe that, you know, the trauma narrative was so impactful to me. But over time, you know, I began to see, she helped me see this alternative narrative that existed that, oh yeah, most of the time I tend to do, I tend to do pretty good. I tend to get us from place to place safely. And then, you know, it started with, okay, maybe now I could do a road trip. 
And then later, maybe now I could borrow someone's car. And then eventually, maybe I can rent a car and maybe I can learn to drive stick shift. And all of a sudden, the possibilities for me as a driver started to open up. And I, I became, the, the experience from the trauma helped me to be more cautious instead of fearful. And, you know, there's a difference between, you know, I'm afraid to drive and I just want to be a safe, cautious driver. So all of a sudden, that problem that the trauma brought on by that narrative, I was now beginning to see that taking place in a context, being able to recognize how it can make me better towards who I'm becoming. And moving from the belief of I am a bad driver to I am a driver who sometimes makes mistakes. And I could share stories for hours about the different areas of my life and identity. And I have a feeling I'm sure I will many times on this podcast. But I give that example to talk about how in narrative practices and the work that we're doing, we're trying to ask about that trauma. We're trying to externalize the problems um, that have come into our identity. And we're trying to externalize those so that we can see a different way forward, that we could see alternative narratives. Like I could not see the fact that I was, you know, driving safely place to place every day. All I could see was that one thing. And I was allowing a singular narrative to define my perception of myself. And how often do we do that with things? There's these narratives that we, we live into and we think that that's all there is about us. You know, like the Enneagram is a very interesting thing to talk about when narrative practices, because in some ways it seems to contradict it. Um, but in other ways, you know, there's a book called The Story of You by Ian Morgan Cron. And I love uh, how he talks about this idea that the Enneagram can kind of give language to some of these narratives that are formed within contexts and that these narratives give identity statements about ourselves. So he says here, quote, the Enneagram helped me learn what was feeling and sustaining my old story and what I needed to do that would make it possible for me to keep moving into my new story. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do in narrative practices. Is we're trying to figure out what is keeping the dominant old story, so to speak, alive in our lives and what needs to happen for it, for us to have agency to move into a new preferred alternative story. And if you're interested in all this stuff about identity, I do a workshop called The Web of Identity, where besides a lot of the things we're talking about here, we actually take time to map out uh, our perception of ourselves and the person we're becoming. And we do that mainly through looking at uh, who's influencing us, what people and narratives, what is influencing our perception of who we are and who, and how is that informing who we're becoming? And so go to allthingsnarrative.com if you're interested in having the Web of Identity workshop uh, with your group, or the Web of Identity is also a part of my my main workshop, which is Live a Meaningful Story, where we 
dive all in to narratives and story and what that means for our lives. And the web of identity is one of many uh, activities that we do in that workshop. So go to allthingsnarrative.com if you want to learn more about that. And if you want to have these discussions about identity uh, in a more individualized, personal way, uh, narrative life coaching. So also at allthingsnarrative.com, you get a free 15-minute consultation and we can talk about identity and I will listen and I will ask questions and I will be here for you um, however I can in helping you to think through all these things. So yeah, I think I'm going to wrap it up there with identity. I think this episode's already gone on long enough, longer than I had anticipated, but we will have much more to say about identity uh, in plenty of future episodes. But for now, I think this really gives us somewhere uh, to build off for the future. So thank you so much for checking out this Narrative 101. And we'll be back next week to talk about uh, why we love Marvel. So until then, this is your friendly narrative practitioner, Derek, signing off. So long and take care.